Hey friends, welcome to the Jesus Collective Podcast. My name's Matt. We're so glad you're tracking with us. Jesus Collective is a new relational network of churches and leaders with a vision to unite, amplify, and equip this Jesus-centered movement that God is raising up all over the place. During this pilot season, we're experimenting with different ways to build relationships with people in this movement, to put language to what Jesus-centered means, and to have meaningful and honest equipping conversations about the issues and opportunities facing our churches in this increasingly post-Christian context we find ourselves in. So, this podcast is one of those tools. You might find a number of different types of conversation formats shared here, and we hope you find it meaningful and engaging. You can learn more about us, join our mailing list, find information about upcoming online and in-person events, all that good stuff, at our microsite at JesusCollective.com, or you can find us on social media. And hey, we love hearing feedback and ideas and just meeting new Jesus-y people, so you can always reach out by email at connect at JesusCollective.com. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's get on with the podcast. The Jesus Collective Interactive, online interactive podcast is really meant to do a couple things for uh, in these early days and in our pilot season of Jesus Collective. Uh, a couple things. So this podcast is, is uh, a way for us to continue to learn about Jesus Collective. What is Jesus Collective? This new network that's forming. Uh, in response to us, what we sense God is doing across North America and parts of Europe. And we want to be responsive to that, and we want to coalesce together. And one of the visions of Jesus Collective is that this be a, a space where we are being equipped for mission and where we're able to meet each other. And that's what we're doing today in our conversation with Ephraim. Ephraim's going to be uh, helping us just have a greater vision for diversity in this movement and diversity in our churches in this fast-paced, globalized world, and what does it look like for us to be an expression of the full body of Christ. And then uh, we'll also have some time at the end uh, for Q&A, and then a chance for about 15 minutes to just connect with each other and see who is out there in Jesus Collective world uh, who, um, who's interested and wants to have conversations. But before we do that, we want to hear from Matt Miles. Matt Miles is uh, part of the, the team, the leadership team for Jesus Collective, and he's helping give uh, point leadership to helping us get this network, this collective off the ground. So, Matt, tell us what's going on. Thanks, John. Appreciate that. Uh, yeah, just building on what John said, it's great to see everybody, and we know that there's probably people listening to this podcast who aren't necessarily joining in live. So whether you're a familiar face or you're someone new to the conversation, welcome. It's just great to be spending time together. Um, Just building on what John said, we're in this thing called a pilot season. What does that mean? It means what we're doing is real, but it's kind of contained and it's experimental. And we're rallying and coalescing around this vision for a new relational network of churches and leaders that's trying to do a few things. To unite this movement together and bring more cohesiveness and relationship to it. To amplify it. Someone has coined the term in our, uh, in our friendship circles that we want to be a quiet, loud voice. I love that terminology. We're trying to give more visibility to the Jesus-centered way. Um, but we're also trying to equip it. Like John said, this is an example of one of those experiences that's designed to actually be giving us how-to, not just head knowledge, but helping us advance the kingdom in a practical way in our context. So within this pilot season, there's really a few things we're trying to accomplish around that vision. One is we're just trying to lay DNA. We're trying to start building a culture and launching some speedboats that 
help us put that culture in place. And today's a great example of a way we want to do that, building dialogue spaces that are more than just academic and abstract, but they're helpful for us as people that are in ministry uh, in a Jesus-centered context. The second thing we're doing is we're just testing and experimenting what works and what adds value and is useful for people, especially leaders and churches and people that are, that are doing ministry out in the ground, out in the field. Um, and we're learning some things about what's working and we're making some mistakes. And that's exactly what we designed this to do in a pilot. And so your feedback and your input after experiences like this is key. Um, John and his team also just in the last week launched our first pilot online learning collective. So a cohort of 12 people from across North America journeying together over six weeks around some great content and some great experiences, a very relational, intensive type of sprint style conversational learning. That's an example of a really cool experiment that we're launching and seeing, seeing what we learn from that so that we can replicate it at more scale and even better over time, affecting more people. Um, and the third thing we're doing is we're building relationships. So just yesterday, we had our third regional vision casting gathering since coming out of the closet as a new pilot network in the spring. And we've had about 200 leaders across these first three gatherings in Virginia and in London, UK and in Toronto yesterday. And that's just an example of one of the ways we're trying to actually form relationships with people who want to get closer and keep connecting with Jesus Collective. We don't just want to be a network where there's in and out experiences. That's great and that's fine, but we want to offer people the chance to actually be journeying with others over the longer term. And so we're in a process during this pilot of building those relationships in parallel. And just to give you some context, our hope is that sometime in the mid to back half of 2020, we actually come out of pilot and we have something that's more sustainable um, and offers more tangible, ongoing relationship engagement opportunities for people that desire that and feel a high sense of alignment with the vision and what Jesus Collective is trying to offer. So with that said, if that persona kind of sounds like you, put May 4th and 5th on your calendar in 2020. That's a time that we're getting pretty excited about. That'll be an opportunity for us to really launch Jesus Collective um, and to start dialoguing about some of the key issues that really matter to this movement, to come together as a movement in a larger scale for the first time. Um, and if you feel like you're someone who'd like to keep journeying with us, that'll also be a great time to learn about what does that mean and look like from a practical standpoint. So there's lots of ways to track with us and contact us. You can find us online at jesuscollective.com. Um, I'm going to end it there. Let's get to the meat and potatoes of why you came today. We want to hear from our awesome guest, Ephraim Smith, and there's a great story from Cole coming up before that. So back over to you, John. Thanks for the, thanks for the minutes. Yeah, that's great. All right, Cole. Taylor is a, a new friend to Jesus Collective and a personal, becoming a personal friend of mine. And so, uh, Cole, I just want to welcome you to this space. Hello. And, uh, yeah, give you a chance to uh, tell us a little bit, what, where's your ministry context and how did you find Jesus Collective? Well, my ministry context, I'm in a uh, church in Oklahoma, uh, right outside of Oklahoma City, a little suburb, Edmond, Oklahoma, on the north side of Oklahoma City at the church. It's uh, the Well Church. And uh, it's a conservative Christian church, uh, non-denominational brotherhood or sisterhood of churches. And uh, so basically, I ran into Jesus Collective about seven-ish years ago. I kind of went through a faith crisis, started struggling with my own faith and all of the things going on in conservative political <laughs> Christianity in the States. And uh, I started talking to some of my friends and was contemplating leaving ministry, leaving the church. And one of my brothers was like, Hey, that that's, that's not smart. That's not wise. And turned me on to Greg Boyd. And I started listening to Greg Boyd 
And uh, he started putting language to a lot of the things that I was struggling with and thinking and processing and reading from other sources. And then he had this guest speaker, this weird guy named Bruxy showed up and I was like, <laughs> wow, this guy, this guy really gets it. And he really spoke to me. So I started listening to Bruxy and reading their stuff and just absorbing it and uh, ran into, you know, the, just the idea of the Jesus centered way, which was what I was leaning towards and reading from other places. They just put that language to it in the third way process and uh, just been tracking with them. And in that process, I went from being a youth pastor or student pastor to a lead pastor of a church, which is a little bit of a jump and uh, just continued to track with them and then heard of Jesus Collective and stuff. And I did not want to do it. I'm not very into <laughs> group settings and things, but <laughs> that same friend uh, who I call Prophet Aaron was like, dude, you need to get involved with this and kept sending me the emails and stuff. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, the spirit just kept to- telling me to jump in and to dive in. And I'm in that 12 person cohort, like you said, and it's been amazing so far. We're just in the middle of week two and it's already been great because I shared with the group a little bit, but I was not in a great place going into it. Just kind of mm-hmm. questioning things again, mm-hmm. been in church leadership for four years and things are going good, but they're just kind of not stagnant, but like, it's the same thing. I'm always busy, always doing something. And, uh, just I needed God to speak to me in a new way again, and I, this was how He showed up, and I'm grateful for it, and excited about what it's going to do. What what the <laughs> Jesus Collective is about about putting people of like mindedness together and, and looking at Jesus as the center of the gospel and the center of everything in life is exactly what I want, and I want to see. Especially in Oklahoma, we have a bunch of conservative churches, great churches, but they're just the focus is not always sounds crazy to say, but it's not always on Jesus. Yeah. It's on other things. And I just want to see that change. And we are attracting people at our church that are into that same thing. They just keep showing up. And I have to believe it's Holy spirit thing. Cause I know it's not me and it's not my leadership team. It's just how God is moving and changing people from the inside out. So I'm uber excited about what's happening here. I'm glad yes. to be a part of it. Thanks for sharing Cole. And thanks for being just so, yeah, bringing your honest self to the conversation. That's really the vision. Part of the vision of Jesus Collective is that this is a place where we can be, we can be honest and we can be surrounded by brothers and sisters who are cheering us on. And um, I love to hear that. So just share with us briefly, what, what do you think is the, what would be your vision for Jesus Collective? What do you hope it can bring to the, to the church landscape in North America or maybe Europe even? Uh, from your perspective? More unity like this. Like I said, and I still struggle with this. I'm trying to find people, even locally, that believe the same way. And I don't want to just hang out with people that completely, you know, we're talking about diversity today, but I, I need some people around me to speak truth into me and to speak in this way so that we can continue to move and to grow and share resources and to share ideas and to pray for one another and lean on each other. And I think that's needed throughout the entire church, not just in the U.S. or in Canada, just globally. We need mm-hmm. to stop <laughs> acting like we're in competition with one another and realize that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what I'm hoping this is, is going to do. It's just going to be a catalyst that starts the church locally and then like regionally and globally to kind of just get along and, and see what God's doing in those pockets. Because what's great to me is like, I start seeing this, I'm like, okay, I'm not alone in this. I'm not an Island. God is doing this all over the place. And that's encouraging and exciting and also terrifying to be part of that. 
So yeah. I just hope it's, I just hope it's catalyst to uh, help all of us grow closer to Jesus and to reach people, of course. Mm-hmm. That's great. I love that vision of, uh, you know, uh, unity is not uniformity. Unity is, is unity and diversity. And that seems to be what is happening as we're in conversations with people who are not always agreeing on everything, but agreeing on that desire for unity. And that to me is the, that's the third way beauty uh, that we're finding in Jesus. So Amen. Yeah, totally. thank you, Cole, for just giving us a little glimpse into your, your context and your heart and we cheer you on. And uh, it's so great having you a part of the online learning collective. You're, you know, we're digging into how do we pastor and lead in a post-Christian context. And so uh, it's just great, great being on the journey with you. Thank, thank you, you for having me. It's been yeah. a blast. Great. So I just want to highlight, um, so we're going to archive this conversation. So uh, at the end of our time, you'll get an email and we'll put on the uh, website a link to this conversation for you to share this with other people or uh, for you to hear it for the first time if you're uh, joining us through a podcast link. But I'm going to hand it over to uh, Melissa and she's going to help kick off our time with our friend Ephraim Smith. Woohoo! Hi, friends. My name is uh, Melissa. It's been awesome to uh, be part of all this Jesus Collective fun. I'm uh, a pastor at the Meeting House, so this has been part of our world for a while. But it is uh, it is just so awesome to see how many people are connecting around the world. Uh, it's certainly been uh, yeah very energizing for me and my ministry too. Uh, Ephraim, uh, you spoke at the Meeting House a number of years ago, uh, so maybe you're not new for those of us in this world. But I think you might be new to many of us in this tribe. Uh, what do you do? You're a pastor in California, uh, Sacramento. Just heard that it's 88 degrees there, which is crazy. <laughs> For Canadians, that's around 28, 29 <laughs> degrees Celsius, I heard. <laughs> I, but if you, I think if you could summarize your life, your ministry, everything into a sentence or two, who is Ephraim Smith? I'm currently the co-senior pastor of Bayside Church Midtown in the heart of Sacramento. Now, Bayside Midtown is actually a campus of a multi-site church called Bayside Church, founded over 20 years ago by Ray Johnston. We are seven campuses, uh, mainly in the Sacramento region, but also uh, have a campus in uh, the North Bay, just north of San Francisco. But what's unique about our model is each campus has its own senior pastor or co-senior pastor team. Bayside Midtown Church is uh, kind of the urban, multicultural expression of the Bayside family of churches. So I've been a co-senior pastor here for about two years, originally from Minneapolis, Minnesota, married to Danisha for 26 years, have two daughters, Jada and Maria, who are 22 and 20. And uh, I have for um, 20 plus years had a passion for urban ministry, uh, but also the church as an outpost of the kingdom of God, amplifying reconciliation, Mm. justice, and disciple making. Mm -hmm. Amen. So 20 years in uh, ministry. What's a little bit of your background theologically? Uh, what, What brought you to this place? Sure. I'm both a product of the African-American church uh, in the United States and 
the evangelical church. So I grew up uh, in the African-American Baptist tradition. So originally licensed and ordained in the National Baptist Convention, which is one of the original kind of um, organizational structures of African-Americans coming out of slavery in the United States. Mm. Uh, and um, actually a, uh, a slave named George Lyle, who was able to buy his freedom as well as his wife and children's freedom, was one of the first church planters in the African-American Baptist tradition, even before African-Americans had any semblance of full uh, rights or citizenship in the United States. And so I come out of that tradition. So I know from that there would be some linkages to the Anabaptist uh, tradition, uh, but also um, I'm a product of evangelicalism through the Evangelical Covenant denomination, which began as a Swedish immigrant movement, but they must have changed because I'm in it. (laughs) um, Back in the 1980s, the Evangelical Covenant Church was fresh off of um, uh, publicly stating their position of of supporting uh, women in pastoral leadership. And right after that declaration of uh, moving uh, towards an egalitarian model of polity uh, and structure, the denomination also began to develop what they now call the multi-ethnic mosaic Mm. of the covenant. And so I I would say that um, I am a, in terms of my theological streams, uh, I I definitely uh, am in the stream of black liberation theology, but also pietism. I consider myself a missional pietist so I guess if you would put missional pietism from the evangelical covenant church and black liberation theology from the African-American church tradition, I am a liberation pietist. <laughs> what is a pietist, Ephraim? Yes, what does that mean? So, pietism, uh, and for me, I, I kind of trace my pietism, of course, through the roots of the evangelical covenant church, but also into Germany with pastors and theologians like uh, 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 Franke. And so pietism was basically this this movement that really focused on um, the intimate relationship with God, that really the Christian life is about this ongoing, ardent, affectionate relationship between um, the follower of Christ and, and God. And, and then that lays out disciplines of why it's essential to be in God's word, to be a person of prayer, to believe in the necessity of growing in your new birth in Christ, that that is an ongoing journey. Now, the struggle <coughs> with um, pietism coming out of the West, coming out of places like Germany, is you can get so focused on me and God. I'm in the word with God. I'm in prayer with God. I'm following Christ that you lose a sense of the missional mandate of the Christian life, the call to love mercy, to do justice, uh, the call to um, that Jesus gives in Matthew 25 of 
clothing the naked, giving food to the hungry, drink to the thirsty, seeing about the immigrant and the incarcerated. And so that's why in the evangelical covenant tradition, we've talked about missional pietism, so that there definitely is a focus on growing in my sanctification, growing in my justification that comes through the grace, uh, the, the free gift of God through Jesus, but also being reminded that I'm called to be missional in a broken, unjust, sinful world. Hmm. You had said that you saw some uh, like Anabaptist connections to uh, some of those roots there. Can you speak a little bit more to that? Like what does the Anabaptist connection for you look like? I mean, definitely um, my friendship with, with folks like Greg Boyd and Bruxy Cavey um, and uh, a, 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 an African-American theologian and pastor, Dennis Edwards, it's has great. helped me see some of the mm-hmm. intersections between the influence, um, the, the, the influence that like movements like the civil rights movement mm-hmm. has had upon me and uh, an Anabaptist tradition that I wasn't as familiar with. So I, I think that um, there are definitely... What I'm, what I'm learning is that there are some linkages, there are some intersections between the African-American church tradition that I come out of, uh, which is Baptist, and uh, elements of the Anabaptist movement. Uh, and, and, and to the point that um, even though I feel very versed in my liberation pietism, I, I have felt drawn post-doctoral studies to want to become more of a student of, of the Anabaptist tradition. That's great, Ephraim. Uh, so help us understand. So one of the, one of the challenges for those of us that are either I'm, I, I'm a part of a historic Anabaptist denomination, but there's also many people who are, who are uh, kind of coalescing around this neo Anabaptist movement, or they're saying they're Anabaptist. Uh, so they're kind of Anabaptist, but ish. And so uh, one of the realities that we are looking at and being honest with ourselves about is that we tend to be, uh, we're, we're not exclusively white, but we tend to be more Euro descent, those of Euro descent. And so uh, I would just love to get your thoughts as you've really thought hard about um, racial reconciliation and a church that's post, you know, that's your book, right? Post black, post white church. Um, you can say post, post white, post, um, say singular colored church in the sense of churches that are just coalescing around one ethnicity or one culture. And I would just love to hear you diagnose for us why this is a problem. Why, why do we tend to silo by ethnicity and race and culture? Sure. Um, Well, let me try to briefly paint a picture of of a a question that could send me down many pathways. But I I would say this. um, I, I believe that it is possible to regard and revere the Europe, the European Western roots of the Anabaptist tradition and be informed on how that speaks to 
a missional, disciple-making, thriving, fruitful church movement that advances the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, recognize that European roots of Christendom, of the church, is only one aspect or one place to be informed on what it means to be a missional church movement, to be a disciple-making uh, Christ follower. And so, um, for me, being African-American, I mean, I grew up, I mean, there's no way for me in the United States, I was able to escape um, the European expressions and foundations of Christianity. I mean, I, I can't go to seminary. I, I, I can't get ordained without knowing Martin Luther, without knowing John Wesley, without mm -hmm. knowing George Whitfield, with, mm -hmm. with, without um, knowing, uh, you know, even in, in my tradition of the covenant, uh, Evangelical Covenant Church of P.P. P. Wallstrom and David Nivell and, and, and uh, Spainer, uh, it, it, Eurocentric uh, Christianity and its expressions are all around me. It's the dominant form of Christianity. But we need to recognize two things. Christianity was on the move before the European expressions of it. What? The, the, the first century <laughs> uh, was not majority European. And the, the, and the roots of Hebraic people, of the people that God made covenant with to make God's self known in a sinful, broken world before coming to earth in the expression of the marginalized Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua, the Savior, those expressions were not predominantly European. And so I think if we don't look beyond European Western expressions of the church, of disciple-making, uh, of mission, uh, we're, we're leaving out so much richness uh, that is the first century church. Um, so, that, so that's one. Second, we are called to make disciples of all nations. All nations. Now, what, what we have seen, unfortunately, is expressions of we make disciples of all nations by not just presenting Jesus to all nations, but presenting Western Eurocentric white culture to all nations. And we've sold people on the idea that, you, that to be Christian is not just to understand Jesus, but to become white, to become European, to become Western is to be Christian, which then again um, leaves out so much richness of what it means to be Christian prior to Eurocentric Christendom. But also, um, it leaves out that in the first century, uh, Paul, in particular, spoke a lot about how people did not have to take on the culture mm -hmm. of the Jews yeah. in order to follow Christ. Right. They didn't have right. to eat like the Jews. They didn't have to be circumcised like the Jews. They, they didn't have to be Jewish Christ followers. They could be reconciled to Jewish Christ followers and be Gentile Christ followers, all of them dying to self collectively in community for the sake mm -hmm. of the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. So that's the second dynamic of why we need to consider a Christ-centered, multi-ethnic 
post-black, post-white approach to what it means to be missional, to be a Christ follower. And then here's the third one. Uh, Philip Jenkins uh, let us know in his book, um, uh, is it called then? No, uh, Sun Chon Ra is is the next evangelicalism. Jenkins' books is the next Christendom. Next Christendom, that's right. Yes. The, the, the global so, so what he tells us is, hey, the, the honest truth is, where the church is growing right now, where the church is thriving is not so much Europe, not so much the United States of America. It's, it's, in, it's in Africa. It's in Asia. It's in underground parts of the Middle East where you could be persecuted severely for representing Jesus. And so in this very diverse yet deeply divided mission field that we live in on this planet, I, I am not trying to throw, uh, throw out uh, the richness of the European Western foundations. I mean, please, I mean, there is much to glean from the Reformation. There's much to glean from so many expressions uh, of, of the church and its thriving and flourishing from Europe into the United States. But at the same time, I think there is a rich story that could bless the entire body of Christ when we look at movements such as the African-American uh, church tradition and its roots of from slavery and from Jim Crow segregation being also a missional thriving movement that could inform and be a gift to those that want to be missional in today's reality. But it's the question of how. So let's, let's just say everybody listening to this podcast who is of European descent, like me, who come from churches that are primarily, primarily full of people of European descent, like the church that I'm a part of. And let's say, Ephraim, we hear you. You're right. We're convinced. Yes. Amen. Okay. Now what? Yes. Well, I think one, um, in the evangelical covenant church, how did the, how did the ECC get from being a um, a solely Swedish, uh, quote-unquote, white denomination to becoming the multi-ethnic uh, denomination that it is now, where um, uh, I think something like 35 to 38% of our churches would be ethnic, non-Anglo, multi-ethnic. How does that happen? Wow. So the covenant came up with uh, a tool, an assessment tool called the five-fold test for multi-ethnic ministry. And so it looks at five areas that start with the letter P on how you get on the journey of being more diverse. So first is population. So one of the ways that a church can go from being homogeneous, and that, that was what you we were referring to earlier, John, um, how, how do you go from being homogeneous to being diverse, multi-ethnic? First, look at the current mission field around where your local church is. 
where you are called to serve and advance the kingdom. And if that demographic, if that surrounding community, if that population is not all white or all black or all Asian, then you need to engage the parts of it that don't represent your dominant culture. I tell people all the time, if you walk out the doors of your church and you walk five blocks, six blocks in either direction, and all you see is white people, you should be the best white missional church you can be. I like if you walk outside the doors of your church and all you see is black people or Asian people, you should be the best thriving, mm-hmm. healthy, missional black or Asian church you can be. But if you walk through the community where you live, where you have coffee, uh, where you shop, where your kids go to school and you see diversity, you need to feel a missional urgency, a missional passion and obligation to engage that reality. So you have to start with population because population is the first level of low-hanging fruit to realizing new community in the body of Christ. Second is participation. Uh, So uh, at Bayside Midtown, we don't just want the diverse population of people visiting our church. We want them to stick. We want them to participate. We, Mm -hmm. We want them to find community with us. So we have to ask ourselves, the way we... um, express worship, uh, the way we present ourselves, is it suitable for someone who doesn't represent the majority, the dominant group of people in our church to find a place, to find a voice? And so participation <clears throat> is, is the next level. The second is, uh, well, I'm sorry, the third now we're on. Can is, I stop you? Can I stop oh, you on sure, that? Sure. So when you talk about worship style, this is a, I think this is a, a big one. I know that's hard to say blanket statements on this, but like uh, if there's a way to say as a, as a best practice or general rule, if you are a church of European descent typically and you are trying to be more multi-ethnic and you are represented, let's say you're in an urban center in North America somewhere, Canada or the U.S., and uh, that urban center is very much a mosaic and your church is white. What, what are some of the things that you're finding that churches are doing or needing to do in their worship style to create a greater sense and place of participation for a, a, a greater variety of um, ethnicities and, um, yeah, ethnicities? Yes. Well, I think that's a great example of why you have to move from um, population to participation. So I don't expect, for instance, uh, a predominantly white evangelical church that uh, its genre of worship right now is a CCM style. If they're right. doing um, Chris Tomlin or, you, you know, uh, Lincoln Brewster, uh, if, you know, Jesus culture, Hillsong, right. if that's uh, the, the type of worship that they're currently doing in, in, in the music. I don't expect them to just start, <laughs> um, bringing in Kirk Franklin songs and Yolanda Adams songs and, and just because that's not their thing. But as your population becomes diverse, that's why it's important to say from up front, you know, we are becoming a more diverse church. 
But our diversity must go beyond the seats. It must go beyond the parking lot. There are diverse, unique, incredible gifts out there in the audience. And we need to get you from the seats to, to, um, to other places of influence in this church. So then that way, by pulling gifted people uh, that from other ethnicities, from other backgrounds into the worship, into the teaching, uh, into the discipleship strategies, now that diversity uh, through participation helps um, influence those other areas. You, you see what I'm saying? I mean, I, I sounds sometimes... Like to me, right? It sounds like, a, a, like an organic relational influence rather than here's a, here's a program step to take. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes, exactly. Yeah, um, those that, so you want your population to be diverse, and then you go, how can we help our diverse population meet Christ in a way, get on the road of discipleship in a way, discover their gifts in a way that they are now serving and participating so that our experience of worship and other elements of our ministry, our, our church community looks and sounds more and more like heaven. I like that. Mm-hmm. So from participation, the next P is power. And that's like, who's making the decisions at the church? What, when you look at your polity, your, for lack of a better term, your governance structure, how decisions get made, how can the the influencers at uh, you know I know I'm using some old school language here but at the highest levels of authority and leadership how does that become more diverse that's why um, I'm so glad that at Bayside we're multi-site but we're but our campuses are not video venues I I I I want to be careful because I don't want to down multi-site large churches that their other campuses are video venues because I understand if you have a woman or a man that God is gifted uh, to, to preach and teach in a way that it, that it mobilizes, it inspires, it, it deeply impacts lives, you want to get that voice out to as many places as you possibly can. That totally makes sense. But for us, the, we say at Bayside, the reason we exist is to make disciples of all nations. Mm -hmm. That's why we exist. And so our campuses need a diversity of communicators, men and women of various ethnicities. We all preach the same sermon every weekend, but it's being preached from uh, the, it's being preached from a diverse speaking team. I co-pastor with a guy who his, his roots are Armenia, and he's married to a woman from Mexico. And I think one of the reasons that, uh, that our church is, you know, praise God, it, it is the thriving multi-ethnic reality that it is, is because it's not just me as an African-American doing all the preaching and all the leading and making all the decisions mm-hmm. with a board that looks just like me. Right. Um, you know, I think it's because Krista Armstead preaches and I preach and Bob Ballion preaches and we have a diverse staff. Uh, that, that means something. So once you do those things, 
population, participation, power. Then it sets up what, what we call um, purposeful narrative. Uh, purposeful narrative means when you tell the story of your church, it is an ever-increasing Christ-centered, multi-ethnic, multicultural story. When people see, you know, it used to be the best way to know a church's purposeful narrative is you would go to their church building and you would go to the fellowship hall. And in the fellowship hall, you would see pictures on the wall. That was the narrative, the story of the church. Now it's, it's, it's your website. It's your Facebook page. It's your Instagram account. That's how you see the, that's the purposeful, what people say about their church on purpose. And so uh, your story, over time, your heritage becomes multi-ethnic. That's why, going back to what I said at the beginning, I think that, I think it's wonderful that at the Jesus Collective, you are leaning into an Anabaptist tradition, and it impacts North America and Europe. But I hope that there's a way in the Jesus Collective that without compromising the essential elements of who you desire to be, that you'll also say that we can also have an even broader missional kingdom impact by looking at ways that maybe African traditions Mm. and takes on theology might be a blessing. Uh, The African-American church. Uh, South America. I, I don't know. I, I want to be very sensitive to uh, God has given the Jesus Collective a, a, a missional mandate and a vision and, and, a, and a purpose. I, I, I just hope that um, alongside a, a very rich tradition that's going to inform a missional future that um, maybe the tradition that I've come out of uh, Maybe a movement that began with slaves on plantations uh, that gave a new expression of what missional church could be in North America could also inform a missional future and help uh, us move uh, forward in a more fruitful way in making disciples of all nations. So, um, so once you, once you uh, get through purposeful narrative, then you become, last P, uh, a pace setter. People mm. come and look to you for how they might make changes in how they see ministry. Mm. Um, you, you, you become a pace setter of reconciling multi-ethnic uh, disciple-making ministry. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, our, our denomination right now is also considering a six P, mm. um, which I think, I hope I'm getting the, the word that starts with P right, but I think <laughs> it's um, purposeful solidarity. Ooh. Ooh, that's good. Which means you look for allies that may not be from your tradition, but they don't compromise right. what you're trying to stay rooted in from your tradition for a more fruitful, thriving, kingdom-advancing uh, realization. Mm-hmm. 
I have a question to jump back to the uh, the power narrative, <laughs> or I think through all of these. But like, how do we how do we help from making this not tokenism? So if we're part of a church that maybe is predominantly one culture, we want to be intentional with uh, bringing in other voices because we do see that as fruit of a Jesus centered way of approaching. Uh, um, missional living, like how how do we invite uh, that participation and give spaces of power without it feeling, um, yeah, like a token, like we're just doing this because, or is that something that we name and we say, hey, this is who we want to be as part of our purposeful narrative in this conversation? Uh, what does that look like, or how has that worked well, maybe in your context? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I I don't think I think that. Um, I want to nuance this right. I think that there can be a subtle difference between intentionality Mm. and tokenism. You know, tokenism can just come across as you just want to fill a spot. Mm. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't, you know, intentionality is we want to be more diverse, but we want to be more diverse in a way that aligns with our mission with our purpose. And we're not just looking for a person of a different ethnicity, a different uh, of the other gender to fill a seat. We're looking for diversity, but we're also looking for missional alignment and we're looking for giftedness. We're, you know, and so we, we, it, we're going to fail if, if I just say, man, we could really use an Asian person. Next Asian person I see, I'm going to do everything I can to get them on our staff versus I met an, I, I, I met an Asian woman gifted and through a series of conversations with her, I realized that there is such a heart match between her calling and my calling. Could it be we're supposed to be in team together? Mm-hmm. Like, like I think that kind of intentionality and I just believe God will bless it. I think of our heart, desires. I believe this is one of those issues, a la John 15, where we can ask whatever we wish in this context and (laughs) God will give it to us. To say, God, I want a church that looks like heaven. I want a movement that looks like heaven. I'm asking this. I wish this. I want this. I think this is one of those, ask it, and if you really are serious, God's going to give it to you. And so I just... I don't, I don't know. What, well, I mean, for me, it's different. I mean, you know, I, if I pray, God, please let me meet some white people. I, just, <laughs> I can't remember the last time I asked God to meet white people. I just do. <laughs> That's amazing. What do you, what do you think it is? Because I think maybe there's notes to this on, on what not to do, but what do you think it is that keeps our churches so segregated, that keeps us isolated in our own spaces? Well, I think one is we are so dominated with the European Western white expression of Christianity as the universal, the the normative expression of Christianity that um, if, if we're not careful, we have no urgency. Mm. Um, to want to uh, get blessed by other expressions. So, um, so I, I think the thing we have to think about 
and I hope you don't hear me throwing out the baby with the bathwater. But I just go, okay, if the mandate that the Messiah gave us was to make disciples of all nations, if that's really what we're called to do, <clears throat> do I need some books on my bookshelf? Do I need to subscribe to some podcasts? Do I need some friendships? Like, how can I make disciples of all nations if I don't have friends of different nations? I mean, that's why, I'm, I'm, that's why the opportunity that opened up a few years ago for me to connect with Meeting House is so meaningful to me. Because I had to see that making disciples of all nations, I can't just say, oh, yeah, what that means is as long as I have diverse ethnic racial connections in the United States, I'm good. No, <laughs> maybe I need intentionally to say every door God opens to, to get equipped to develop networks so that I can say in South Africa, in Canada, in, in Kenya, in, you know, that there are different places where I have, where I have friendship, network, or even there are theologians and pastors from different nations that I'm reading. That I'm, I, I need a desperation to say, I need to drink from a Christ-centered, uh, diverse fountain. I need to hear from men and women so that I can be better equipped to live out that missional mandate. So Ephraim, this is gold. This is, this is great. You said something about we have to we have to move past those European that European Christianity or European descent Christianity. So for someone like me, I'm white. I've been in a white church my whole life. I've been schooled in predominantly white schools in terms of um, you know evangelicalism, and um, I, so it's like I'm a fish in a fishbowl. So I need you to tell me what because I think that's normative and I need you to tell me what the water looks like. So can you, can you deconstruct or can you show me what, what does white European Christianity look like? Because I'm so close to it. I think this is normal. What are some yeah. aspects of it? So, um, you know, it's interesting. So I just came off of a trip. I, from October 2nd through the 18th, um, I went on a trip. It was called the Footsteps of Paul Tour. Mm -hmm. So um, from our various campuses, about 300 of us uh, went on this trip where we went to Rome. And then from Rome, we went over to Greece and we went to Athens and we visited Mars Hill. We went to the ancient ruins of Corinth. Um, then we went over to Turkey and we went to Ephesus. And so um, I, I hope this helps to answer the question because um, it's, the, it's the best way I know to kind of to talk about it right now. When I was in Rome, I went to Vatican City mm -hmm. and it was incredible. I don't care. I'm Protestant. But man, I, I almost had a second Catholic conversion. I was like, it was that deep. I was like, there's just something about being in Vatican City, being at the Vatican Museum, going to the Basilica of St. Paul. It, 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 it was incredible. Um, and it reminded me of 
the roots of Christendom prior to the Reformation. I mean, I saw images, artifacts that reminded me even of, of how what we know as the Catholic Church, its roots in um, the Christian movement. Uh, what's the best way to say this? Greg Boyd talks about this better than me in his books on myth of a Christian religion and myth of a Christian nation. But he talks about how things changed, this movement changed once the relationship through Constantine was solidified and the church became a state church, basically. Yeah. Yep. A national church. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being in Vatican City, it was like I was reminded of, I would say, the richness and even some of the complexities and some of the crisis of Western European Christendom. Then I was in Corinth, and I was reminded that there was a time when Western European white Christianity was not the dominant form of Christianity, that Christianity was not being driven by the privileged, by the wealthy, by the highly educated. There was a time when marginalized, brown, olive-skinned, second-class people under the oppression of the Roman Empire um, had to face tremendous persecution to plant churches, to make disciples, to advance the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And on this trip, to get to what you're asking me, what bridged those two realities, the Western church and seeing such a powerful picture of it in Rome, and the first century marginalized church, experiencing that in Ephesus and Corinth, the bridge to me was Paul. Here was Paul, a privileged, highly educated leader of the dominant form of religion in his day. And he gave up his privilege. He counted his privilege and his education and his high status as both Jew and Roman citizen as dung for the sake of the kingdom of God. And I don't know if that answers your question, but I think more and more of my white brothers and sisters need to be Paul and Paulus and say, what must I give up that I might have a more missional, realization of the kingdom of God. Because in the United States, I can't speak for Canada, uh, but I can say this about the United States. One of the dilemmas of evangelicalism, and uh, I think before we even started the formal part of this show, uh, or maybe it was in the recording, Cole shared something about his own journey in in Oklahoma that really touched my heart. Mm. Because I realized that one of the, One of the dilemmas we have in the United States of America right now is a significant segment of evangelicalism that believes we advance the kingdom primarily from a platform of power. If we control government and all of its branches, if we control 
media and entertainment and the parts of the societal domains that we don't control, we draw a line in the sand and we war against them. And because we want to sustain Christian national power and Christianity is, is in an adulterous relationship with worldly power and empire. And so I think to be missional and to be an outpost of the kingdom of God in the midst of a, a, a counterfeit Christianity that is still highly uh, addicted to nationalistic Constantine-like power, we need Pauls and Paulines that say, I consider my privilege dumb. I consider my power, my Roman citizenship. You know what? I'm not asking you to abandon your deep love, reverence of Anabaptist European tradition. It has been significant in your life. Yeah. But there are also calls times when you say, but you know what? For the sake of a Christ-centered multi-ethnic movement, there are parts of my privilege and power and platform that I will, I, I will allow to be reduced in order to be a missional outpost of the kingdom of God. I, I'm so praying I'm saying this right. I hope I didn't say anything offensive. <laughs> no, no, man. You are blessing us. So like, okay, you have, uh, you've spoken. The Holy Spirit has spoken through you. I'm, I'm repenting. I'm a pastor of a church. I'm repenting. My hands are up. I've got sackcloth and ashes going. Now... I'm with you. I want to, what must I give up? I'm willing to give up. I'm willing, Ephraim. Now, how do I do this? What do I need to, what do I need to like tangibly give up? What do I need to change? I'll, I'll do it. What do I need to do? Okay. So let me talk about Bayside and Ray Johnston. So Ray Johnston, I mean, so he is an example of uh, a white male that has privilege and influence and power, maybe even beyond what he realizes. I mean, Ray Johnston was just on the cover of Outreach Magazine and Bayside was listed as the fastest growing church in the United States. And it was listed as the seventh largest church in the United States. I'm like, yeah, la, 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 la. <laughs> but, uh, but with that does come some Power and privilege and platform. He was on the cover of Outreach Magazine. Ray Johnston could have decided to be a solo, top-down, megachurch American pastor, and he would have been fine. But he will say the reason why we're the fastest-growing church in America is he had to change his pedagogy. Well, no, not his pedagogy, his methodology the way he saw church. And so he could have been a multi-site church where he was on video preaching on every campus. He has decided, no, I want, I want team. I want to flatten the organization. I want to grow, but I want to grow by bringing on more leaders, mm. by bringing on a diversity of leaders. So I mean, again, Can I interject maybe for those of us who don't know who Ray Johnston is. I'm assuming he's white. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, okay, <laughs> thank yes. you. Vanilla white. 
<laughs> like if you looked up white in the encyclopedia, read your hand. Whitey the white. Right. I'm saying this because he's not on the podcast. He, he, by the time he hears it, it I'll have made a, it funny to him. There we go. <laughs> so, Sorry, continue. So, so, yes. So <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is at Bayside, we are who we are today because Ray decided about eight years ago to make some significant changes in the multiplication in the growth model and also in the the metrics, how we would measure faithfulness and fruitfulness. And, and so diversity became diversity and a team approach to leadership. And all of this caused him along the way to have to give up power. If you go on the website of Bayside, if you go to BaysideOnline.com right now, you'll be hard pressed even to see pictures of Ray Johnston. Mm-hmm. He's, he's given up power. He said, the only way we're going to become more diverse is it has to start by the church has to be less of me. And I just want to tell you right now, that's one of the most, I would say, one of the biggest challenges for the church in the United States to be diverse is there's just too many pastors that don't want to make it less about them. Mm. Man, I hate to say oh. that. Man, oh. ouch. I, why did I say that? But I mean, I mean, come on. We got a handprint on the side of our face, man. <laughs> I mean, I go to some websites and Instagram pages of churches, and I can't tell you what their community outreach is. I can't tell you how many people are coming to Christ, but I can tell you who their pastor is. I can tell you who their, what their pastor preached. I can tell you that there's a birthmark under their pastor's left eye because all I see is their pastor. <laughs> I, but I don't know what their youth ministry is like. I don't know what their children's ministry is like. I don't know what their discipleship is like. But I know what that their pastor wore Air Force Ones while he was preaching last Sunday. <laughs> so part of the so part of this is every senior leader in North America, senior pastors of churches have to ask, "What am I willing?" to do? How am I willing to be like Paul, who said, I give up my privilege. I give up. I am a highly learned Roman citizen, Pharisee. I had so much power, I could see about Christians being put to death. And I gave all that up to actually, he went from the persecutor to being persecuted. That's how much Paul gave up. And so I just think to do ministry in the way that I'm presenting, it begins with, what do I have to give up? And that includes me. Like I'm saying, I know, I'm not trying to sound arrogant, but I know right now I could be a senior solo pastor somewhere. Mm-hmm. That's not an issue. But on purpose, I'm co-pastoring with somebody else that's a campus of a larger church. That you're not the pastor of. Yep. Do you know how many times people go, why are you not pastoring your own church? Did something go wrong? People think I'm doing what I'm doing because something went wrong. Like like I left being a solo senior pastor because I couldn't cut it or there was a scandal or, and I'm like, no, I purposely chose to not be a top down solo senior pastor in order to realize a model, one way 
of being a multi-ethnic, reconciling, thriving church. One way to do that is to step away from the model of top-down solo leadership. But what I've learned is when you do that, it's so, it's so unordinary, mm-hmm. it's so different that people think something must have went wrong. Mm-hmm. For, and I'm like, no, no I, I, I just don't want to be a solo senior leader anymore. I just don't. Who was it that somebody, there was somebody familiar that said something about we have to like, I know, give up our lives to find it or something like that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. said that. Right before, he, right before he went to a cross. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that sounds familiar. So, yeah. and I don't want to sound like I'm downing all forms of solo pastoral leadership. There are different ways to get at what I'm saying. But one way to get at it is to decentralize leadership and give up power. Okay. So that's, mm-hmm. <clears throat> that's one way that that's a huge way. I mean, I, I think we all are kind of sitting here um, needing to s- let that one soak in, but if there's another one, so if that, if that's one, if there's a, if there's one more thing that you could leave with us in this podcast about um, how to do this, give up power and share it. If you want to grow your church, grow it through giving it away and raising up leaders. Okay. What else? Uh, another way is just is to in the current model that you have, which uh, Melissa was kind of referring to earlier, is you intentionally diverse diversify your staff, your teams within the current structure and model of leadership that you have. So you you may have a I know models of multi ethnic churches and multi ethnic movements where the leader. There's, there's one senior pastor, one executive director, one president, but then there are diverse teams surrounding that leader, mm-hmm. uh, serving with that leader. So, so that, that's another model. Another model is to say, is, I call it the Moses model. The Moses model is, I won't see this in my own model of church, but I'm going to resource and fan the flames for those that will lead it. So another way this happens is by churches saying, I will intentionally bring on leaders, pour into them, and send them out to develop these kinds of ministries. We will intentionally plant multi-ethnic churches, multi-ethnic movements. We will, we will support, we will resource. So, um, so I know that there, there are predominantly Anglo, white, church planting uh, movements, uh, denominations that go, we may never become as diverse as we want to be, but we're going to find those emerging leaders representing the next generation who are already gifted, positioned, passionate to do this and we're going to resource them. We're going to empower them and fuel their dreams and visions. So good. Wow. It's so beautifully other-centered, too, of like we might not be able to experience the fruit of this ourselves, but that doesn't mean that we can't be intentional with this. And, yeah, that's great. kind of echoes um, Dr. King, like, you know, I might not, I might not go with you, but 
I have a dream. I'm sending you. This is something is possible here. Yes, indeed. Indeed. So we, man, Ephraim, thank you. <laughs> uh, this has been a gift. I, 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 am, I have been personally convicted and challenged. Um, I, I, think, I think I'm hearing something myself from Jesus directly to me in this conversation. I just want to thank you for that. I think others have as well a little bit. We want to transition. One of the benefits of those who are able to join us live in this podcast setting uh, on Zoom here is that they can interact with you. And we want to give people a chance to do that uh, with their questions. And uh, our, our patient friend, Angela, has had her hand raised uh, virtually for about 10 minutes. So she's, <laughs> she's dying for a conversation here. So, Angela, <laughs> Angela you, uh, the floor is yours, my friend. Well, hello. I, uh, goodness, now that the video is on, I have never looked whiter. <laughs> I'm not sure what's happening over here, but oh well. Hey, Ephraim, this is so good. Thank you so much for just speaking candidly. Mm -hmm. It's just really amazing. Um, in my conviction throughout this call, I have several things that I need to work on, but I also would like, I'd love a little bit of help. Um, after addressing what authors I'm reading, realizing I can't name one that's not white, and the, what podcasts I'm listening to, I can't name one that's not white. Like, I have a lot of room to grow in this topic. But even before that, there's been a, a rise up of leadership that has more diversity at our church, which is awesome. We are predominantly white in our population around our church and in our church, but we have begun to get better diversity at the table. It started with gender diversity, which was, I was super grateful for, and then moved into ethnic diversity. But one of the things that I find regularly um, is a self-limiting, almost like this thing that we have accidentally believed about the Western view of church being the church, that even when we've brought people um, with different ethnic backgrounds into leadership, that there is a self-limiting that's happening because they also have sort of believed that thing. You're incredibly convincing as you talk. Do you? Could you give any tips or tricks or what do you use when you see somebody holding back for the dominant culture to take the louder voice? What is it that you do to help pull them out, even literally just in a meeting? Like, here we are in a meeting, and I can tell that they're holding back. How do I pull them out? Yes. You know, um, so, at, um, let me do two things, because I, I want to give an example of, of, that hits to what you're saying. But the first thing I want to say, because I've been thinking about this for a little while in this conversation, I want to recommend a really good book. Um, a woman that was one of my mentors in my doctoral studies Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil. She has a book called Roadmap to Reconciliation. Roadmap to Reconciliation. It's a, it's a really good book that gives some practical theology, but it also presents kind of a tool. Um, she, she talks about how there are these catalytic moments that happen in our lives in our nation, in our churches. And, and what I mean by like a catalytic moment could be just, uh, it could be, if you just go like from the like real negative side, it could be like 
was a catalytic moment. Um, you know, depending on how people felt about the presidential election in the United States, it was a catalytic moment, right? So two things can happen when a catalytic moment happens or a catalytic event. Either people just seek preservation, which means they just, they root themselves in what they already believe and they defend it and they put it on social media and they, they, and they go, this is what I believe. They just want to preserve what they believe. But another way that you can um, respond from a catalytic event or moment is transformation. And so, uh, you know, Dr. Brenda, her contention is uh, we, we, need to, we need to allow transformation to happen in us on a regular basis. Mm. Believing that it's possible to be transformed and not be uprooted from the foundational essentials of what it means to be a Christian. You know, I'm, I mean, I want to be transformed daily, but I still believe that Jesus rose from the grave. I still believe that scripture is central and authoritative. I still believe in the necessity of new birth. I, I, you know, I still believe in freedom in Christ. I still believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the atonement. I believe in the Trinity. I'm not going to be uprooted from those things. They're foundational, but I still need to be transformed daily. So I just want to recommend that book, Roadmap to Reconciliation. Second, I, I hope this gets to what you're talking about, Angela. So at Bayside, uh, all of us, uh, campus pastors and other folks that preach on the weekends, we meet on Wednesdays and we have a sermon prep meeting where we work through the sermon together because we're all going to preach the same scripture, the same title, the same main points, whatever campus we're on. So, um, you know, what, what happened is over about three months or so, every time a sermon idea was given, and we were looking for illustrations. All the quotes were white men. So we, we would quote C.S. Lewis. We would quote N.T. Wright. We would quote Andy Stanley. We would quote, uh, I, I don't know, um, Rick Warren. You know, you know. Uh, and so another pastor who happens to be African-American, I would always see him just, he wouldn't say anything but he, he could, he, you could tell he was just, he was unsettled. So I don't know if I should have did this, but I just, I just said it for him. I just said, you know, I'd like to go a month in this meeting and not quote a white man. Is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> and the, the same reaction I just got here is what I got in that meeting. That, that, <laughs> like, cricket, cricket. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't possible? Well, what I learned is I needed to not just make that statement, but I needed to be part of the solution. Yeah. And so I started bringing quotes from Brenda Salter McNeil. And, you know, I mean, you, you guys, many of y'all, if not everybody here will get this, but like this Sunday, Oh, I'm quoting Beth Moore. Oh, I'm quoting. I'm oh, quoting. good for you. I'm quoting. I was waiting Moore. to go there. After. <laughs> <laughs> Deal with that. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, from the top to the. I mean, I'm going to read scripture. I'm going to say Jesus. Mm -hmm. Then I'm going to say you know, <laughs> Beth Moore said this. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is what Beth Moore says about prayer, huh? 
So, so I, I, I also had to recommend books to people. So I had to make the statement, but I also had to be part of the solution. And so, um, if so, you uh, are speaking straight to what I'm asking, like what are hints and tips and tricks that are helpful for moving the conversation forward? Uh, do you, in both of your instances, you went the direct route and you just called it out, both of the examples that you just gave, both Beth Moore and the white men quote business. Do you ever have side conversations with people saying, hey, I've noticed you're really quiet in these meetings. Is there something holding you back? Like, can we talk about that a little? Yes. So, so that's Hold on, Ephraim, before you go, I just want to say other people, if you want to uh, ask a question, raise your hand. There's a virtual button to raise your hand or you can put it in the chat. So just a little plug. <coughs> but yes, I, I, I have talked to women on our staff outside our meetings, other people of color and said, well, one, I said, don't let me be the only one in here. Okay. Saying something, <laughs> you know, because, you know, I want to influence and I want to inspire, but I don't want to be just seen as the irritant. I mean, but I can yeah. do all three of those eyes. I can be influential, I can be inspiring, and I can be an irritant. There's your next sermon, preachers. There it is. Sunday. Right there. So, so I think it's more influencing and more inspiring when there's a team of people that are speaking to these, these issues. But I, what I learned is I needed to be courageous enough to call some things out so that it would rise up a boldness in other people in the room. And I think well, you're speaking my language. I, that last one, the irritant on the gender issue, that has been my concern has been, am I just driving everyone crazy? Cause I'm the only one speaking up about how this conversation feels to the only woman in the room. So I, I even just, I mean, we joked about it, but those three eyes, uh, that is helpful. <laughs> that is helpful to recognize that I am, I have three roles to play and that it is actually okay to also sometimes make it uncomfortable by being irritant. Like even just and that. The answer, and the answer to that question when I sit in the room, can we go a whole month and not quote a white man? The answer was no. No. <laughs> <laughs> We could go two weeks though. We could we did two two weeks. It was awesome. Two weeks. <laughs> Baby steps. You know what I mean? Can I, can I just jump in and say uh, I think also I echo what Angela what you were saying about wanting to uh, not always be the person who is that one an irritant. And I think that speaks to the power, the positions of privilege that we're into, right? Of like, as we're learning in this conversation that it should not be on people of color to always have to be the ones to say, hey, why the heck are we only having white men as the quote package, right? Or whatever that looks like. Uh, but that uh, it should be a both in whatever leadership position we're in to be the irritants together. Greg had his hand up. Hi there, Ephraim. Thank you so much for, uh, yeah, just uh, amazing things. I've been slow to uh, kind of ask questions because you've given me so much to think about. But in our context here with the Christian Missionary Alliance that I'm serving with, we have these different groups uh, that have kind of all created their own silos. So we have a Chinese Alliance Association and a Vietnamese uh, Alliance Association. And I'm just curious, um, what are your thoughts about how do we help break down these walls and silos between 
these death, different ethnic alliances, uh, associations that have popped up over the years? Uh, thank you for that question. Um, I um, still see uh, great reason and richness in um, ethnic specific associations that represent traditionally unheard or marginalized people groups. So even though we are very much committed to the multi-ethnic mosaic in the evangelical covenant church denomination, uh, I'm a part of the African American Ministers Association. Um, we have Hispanic and Asian associations. Uh, we even have a, uh, you know, because of, of, based on our polity, we have a female clergy association. But even with those associations, the president of our denomination has a mosaic gathering a few times a year where he brings the leadership of all of those associations into the same room to talk about what will the broader kingdom mosaic agenda be for mm -hmm. our denomination. So, uh, so I would just say that um, it's good to have, the, especially if you have first generation church plants in your denomination. I mean, I mean, like we have first generation Sudanese churches in our denomination, uh, first generation, you know, immigrant uh, church plants, and they need these associations, especially if English is not their first language. Um, so the associations uh, are, are meaningful, but at the same time, I think you have to go, how do we get representation from all of those associations into the same room so that they feel that they have a voice in the broader movement and agenda of the denomination. Great. Thank you very much. That's good. So Matt had his hand up. I did. Can you hear me? Yeah. Ephraim, I just echo the thanks for dropping so many gifts to us today. Seriously, it's been amazing. Um, so I have a personal question for you about your character and how you've developed the perspective you have on this conversation. I'm going to guess I'm not the only one who would say, I don't know what words you want to use, but you have a glow to you. Like you just, you are encouraging and you're positive, but that doesn't come at the expense of really talking some truth um, and you do that in love and that that just comes across so clearly um, and we're so grateful for that not just today but that we have people like you in the kingdom but I'm also going to guess that we can all attest sometimes to having either a little or maybe even sometimes a lot of hard-heartedness around topics like this uh, regardless of what perspective from which we enter the conversation. Um, I'm just curious, how did, you, how did you get to be like you are in talking about this, this type of issue? Um, you know, we live in a call-out culture, and sometimes call-outs are healthy within the kingdom if we do that in love, but, but I just don't get that vibe from you. And I'm, I don't know what better words to use to ask you that question, but is it spiritual practices that you commit to that keep your heart soft? Is it, did you have a moment in your life or moments where you've 
intentionally chosen a different path, I would love to learn and I would love everyone to just learn from like how are there how to's about cultivating a soft heart so that we can be an encouraging, positive voice in this conversation like you've offered today versus being one that is more of a screeching voice and comes from a place of a hard heart. Um, again, on either side, all of us, I think, need to develop that. So I don't know if you have anything to say on that, but I'd yeah. love to hear, hear about um, that. Let me try to say three things to that very briefly. One is, um, when I first sensed a call to ministry, and I sensed that that ministry was going to be um, in the area of racial reconciliation and multi-ethnic ministry, being intentional about that. My youth pastor, um, who I've stayed in relationship over the years, I remember him saying to me early in my ministry call, he said, uh, in general, when it comes to issues of race and justice, there are two kinds of people. He said, there are tree shakers and there are jelly makers. And he said, we need both. He said, there are some people that their, their gift is activism. Their gift is to be um, prophetic in a way that, that disturbs. And we have examples of that in scripture. He said, so they're going to shake the tree and they're going to say, look at the injustice. Look at what's going on in our world. How can we be satisfied with this? And they're going to shake the tree and the fruit is going to fall. And when the fruit is falling, some people are going to get hit on the head with it. So that's why some people get mad when they're around tree shakers because it hurts. He said, but somebody has to be the one who picks up the fruit, makes jelly out of it so that people can digest it. And he said, which one are you? And I have come to learn that my call is to be a jelly maker. Doesn't mean that there aren't times when I have a prophetic uh, tinge to me, but my dominant call in the context of what we're talking about is I want to be a jelly maker. I want to produce something that you can put on bread and you can digest it and eat it and say, you know what? That at the end of the day, um, taste and see that the Lord is good and the ways of the Lord is good even the calls to justice and to dismantle injustice. Second thing is, um, when I was in college, I went to a predominantly black high school, and then I went to a predominantly white uh, Catholic university for undergrad. And so it was a culture shock for me when I was in undergrad because I wasn't the majority anymore. And I remember going to the library and going to the basement um, this was at a time still where you would you could um, you could uh, uh, reserve cassette tapes and go into the basement of a and and like listen to cassettes of major speeches, or you could watch VHS tapes of major speeches. And I remember I would spend hours in the library in the basement listening to Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr just hours and hours. And um, I, I still have regard and respect for the writings and the speeches of Malcolm X, but Martin Luther King Jr. resonated with me more. And I just, I was just so moved by 
his passion and courage, but it was so undergirded with love. His vision was the beloved community. And I think that's what third led me into what I talked about, this theological stream of being a liberation pietist. Mm -hmm. And I think that that might be where I have some connections and some leanings towards Anabaptism. And, and its focus on peace and love and compassion and nonviolence. Uh, um, and so now what I've had to do over time is create intentional spiritual disciplines and accountability to live this out. Because I can't lie, there are definitely times when I get angry and, and where, you know, I just go, you know, um, I don't want to stop talking to white people. I just want to reduce the number of ones I talk to today. <laughs> and that's wrong. That's wrong. It's not right. And so I, I have to have, and, and so you know what God has blessed me with? Good white friends that allow me to be transparent with them and to be angry with them and to say whatever's on my heart. I'm glad that I have white friends that, if a cuss word comes out of my mouth, they'll still love me. And, and so I'm fortunate that I have diverse relationships that love me through my pain and lament and grief so that I can get back to my call of proclaiming the beloved community of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Amen, Thank Ephra. You. My goodness. Thank you. <laughs> This has been uh, uh, so great. Thank you for uh, those who interacted with questions and Ephraim, just for your grace with this. I think as I think about this past, we've already been chatting for an hour and a half, which feels like it just flew by, right? Uh, But you have pastored us uh, so well in this conversation. You have been a prophet to us speaking this truth out in, uh, in love. So thank you so much for, uh, for your voice that is so needed and for just the practical things um, uh, that we've been able to take from this. I know the, uh, the tree shakers and jelly makers is going to be my new favorite uh, reference in this conversation. I, I love I it. I still think I got hit on the head once or twice. That's okay. right. <laughs> a few of us, a few apples have fallen uh, from the tree. <laughs> Can I ask you to pray for us, uh, Ephraim, and pray for the uh, different leaders who are in this uh, space, those who might listen to this and the communities that we represent, that we will catch this vision that you have helped uh, paint for us of what it looks like to really reflect the kingdom of God in our areas of ministry and that we can have um, yeah the boldness ourselves as well as call out those tree shakers and jelly makers in our midst it would be my honor be my thanks honor. Ephraim God just so grateful for this opportunity for this this privilege to be a part of this Jesus Collective podcast and uh, I thank you for this group of leaders that you gave the vision and you gave um, the, the push to step out um, and uh, bring this collective together. And God, I pray that you would bless this movement significantly, tremendously, that it would be a game changer for a church that unfortunately is in decline in too many parts of North America uh, and Europe. 
uh, God, uh, we need a, a dynamic, revolutionary infusion of your grace, your love, uh, your power, uh, that, that we might endure, that the lost might be found, the hurting might be helped, the broken might be blessed, and your church might thrive and rise in mm-hmm. times like these. Mm-hmm. So God, I pray that we would live as ambassadors of reconciliation, that we would live as an outpost, as an embassy of the kingdom of God, and that you would also equip us through your Holy Spirit to stand against the powers, uh, against mm-hmm. the, the spirits in high places, against those demonic forces that want to keep us from disciple-making and from staying rooted in your body, in your community. So God, I I thank you for this opportunity and I pray your blessing over Jesus Collective. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. And hey, don't forget to check in at JesusCollective.com where you can learn more about us, join our mailing list, find info about upcoming online and in-person events, all that good stuff. Or you can find us on social media too. And listening is such an important part of our journey, especially in these early days. So you can feel free to reach out to us with ideas and feedback and suggestions. You can always connect with us by email at connect at JesusCollective.com. We'd love to hear from you.